If you brought your Bibles with you tonight, I want you to open to a couple of places. First of all, look at 1 John chapter 3. You love the Word of God. We'll also look in the book of Genesis at chapter 13. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate that. 1 John chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 13. Imagine some of the things that we're going to be sharing together <clears throat> this weekend. I imagine they are some things you've heard before. But just because you've heard something before really means nothing. <laughs> it's what are you doing? What, what word do you believe? What word from God do you know? You see, there's a difference between what you've heard and what you know. If something from the word of God just simply remains something that you've heard then you can still be talked out of it. But when it becomes something you know, then you refuse to be talked out of it. And honestly, that's what this entire battle is about. That's what this entire, the, 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 that fighting side of life, that's what it's over. It's over your knowledge of God. What you know about God from his word to be true, that's what Satan's after. He's after what you know about God. You remember 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says that the, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty. In other words, you can't see the gun necessarily, but it'll blow a hole in your head, devil. So just, I mean, it's mighty through God. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down imaginations, and any high thing, notice this, that would exalt itself against what? The what? The what? Knowledge of God. That's what the fight's over. He's, he's trying to rob you of what you know. Do you know what, do you know what sickness in your body is? It's Satan's attempt to rob you of what you know from the word of God that by the stripes of Jesus, you were and are healed. That's his attempt to rob you of that knowledge. That's what this fight is about. So if we say some things that you've heard this weekend, don't just file that in, you know, yeah, I heard that before. Grab a hold of it and say, do I know this? Am I living this? Am I walking this? Has this thing that I've heard crossed over into something that I know and where it's having an actual effect on my life. That's what we're after. Now, really, before I launch into this, I, I do need to be upfront with you about something. You all are a part of an experiment. And I need a, your verbal agreement to continue with the experiment. Are you okay with me experimenting on you a little this week? If you're not sure, let me explain what the experiment is, and then, then we'll see if I can get your agreement on it. And this is, the, this is the groundwork and the framework of our experiment. We had this thought. We had this thought that I, I, it started as a question. I wonder what would happen if you took a group of people and got them together for two and a half or three days and did nothing but tell them how much they were loved by God over and over and over and over and over and over and, and do nothing else for three days, what would happen to them? So are you willing to be a part of this experiment? Because see, I believe that on the other side of this, the results of the experiment is if you will just let somebody know how deeply, passionately, and crazily God is in love with them and tell them that over and over and over so it crosses over from something they've heard to the light goes on and now they see it and believe it. And it's not just, well, you know, God loves you, brother. Yeah, I know that, but... Or, yeah, I've heard that, but I've heard that before, but look at what I'm dealing with. Well, look, God loves you. Yeah, I've heard that, but look at my sickness. I've heard that, but look, I got bills to pay. I've heard that, but I've heard that, but. And what I'm wanting to do and what I hope the experiment proves is that there's something in you that once you really get a revelation of how much you're loved by God, your response will change to situations. Because I think somewhere along the way, people heard the message of faith and they thought, when they heard it, they thought, well, this, this will mean nothing bad will happen to me again. And that's not necessarily it. It's not saying that nothing bad will go on, but the life and the walk of faith is just simply a different response than everybody else's. 
And yes, you can live above the elements of this world. Yes, you can live in the secret place of the Most High. What I'm, what I'm wanting to pull out of you, though, is that in you is this new nature that was planted in you by the Spirit of God, and it's the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in that nature is a different response to our government's crashing, our economy's crashing, uh, the health system is crashing, and so on and so on and so on. So when people hear that, people who don't have a covenant with God hear that and they respond by saying, oh my God, what am I going to do? What, what could be your response? Our response is supposed to be different. You know that, right? You realize that your life as a believer is supposed to look different than somebody who's not? You do know that, right? And I know that sounds like an obvious statement, but when you look at Christianity, there seems to be this thing that just says, well, we're not relevant enough, we don't, we don't appeal enough. And, and I think people think, well, I, I just feel strange talking this way or I feel strange believing this way. Uh, it's not like everybody else. Folks, can I just let you in on something? If you feel strange, it's because you are. You are. You are not normal. <laughs> it doesn't sound like good news, but I, I promise you that's the best news. Maybe you've heard all day. You're not normal. You're a little off. Because if normal is sick, depressed, broke, hopeless, don't sign me up for that. I'm not interested in normal. There's got to be a different response. So the experiment is if you get a group of people together and just go over with them over and over and over. You're loved. You're loved. God God is with you. God is for you. God is in you. God is around you. He's on your side and never against you. And you just get it in them over and over and over that maybe they'll respond differently than the rest of this world. First John chapter 3, let the experiment begin. This is the foundation scripture for this entire conference. First John 3, 1 says, Behold. Now, as we were before the Lord saying, what do we call this thing? This is months and months and months ago. What do we call this conference? I couldn't get a clear answer on it. He just kept saying, it's in my word. Just keep, it's in my word. The, the name is in my word. Just keep going to the word. And I kept coming across this word that just, we just don't use anymore. Has, has anybody said this in your casual conversation lately? You're talking to somebody, you're just looking at things. Oh, Behold. Behold, what a cute puppy. Oh, behold, your baby's so beautiful. Behold, it's not a word we use anymore, but yet it still has a meaning and it is still significant. The word behold, you know what it means? It means look at this. It means look, I want to show you something. Is, it, is there a place around here called Lookout, Lookout Mountain or Lookout something? And you can you go up there and you do what? Okay, look out. Thank you. That's what I figured happened when you got up there. Um, I haven't been myself, but let's, let's use our imaginations for a moment. You and I are standing up there, and you're looking out one way, and I'm looking out the other. And if I see something you don't see, and I want you to see it, I may not use this word, but I could. I could say, behold. In other words, I see something. You don't see it. I want you to. I'm drawing your attention to it. Look at this. Behold something. The word behold means look at, wake up to, pay attention, perceive, set your eyes on it. Behold this. Behold what? He says, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Behold this. Look at the love of God. Look, wake up to, pay attention, learn to perceive and understand, be aware. That's the one, that's the definition of behold that I want you and I to center in on tonight. Be aware. Our awareness of God and his presence, God and his move in our earth, our awareness of him needs to come 
way up. We have been woefully unaware. Unaware of what he's doing in the earth. Unaware of of what his spirit is moving towards and moving in. and, And unaware of what God is wanting to accomplish in your family, in your business, in your church, in your ministry. Whatever it is you're a part of, God has a plan for it. But we have been, like I said, woefully unaware of it. Walking around asleep. It's like I told you a moment ago, there's supposed to be a difference. If you go back and look at 1 Thessalonians, I believe it's chapter 5, Paul writing here and he said, look, those who sleep, sleep at night. But we are not sons of the night, we are sons of the day. So he said, let us watch or wake up, let us be awake and be sober, right? So if the world is asleep, you and I should be awake. Very good. But if whatever defines this world, you and I should be defined and marked by the very opposite. And they are walking around asleep, unaware that there's a God, unaware that he created them, unaware that he loves them, unaware that there's a plan for them. You and I should not live so unaware. But we've been unaware, unaware of his purpose and plan for our lives. Behold what love. I want to read this to you out of the Weist translation. It says, behold, look at, pay attention to, be aware, and, and this is how he translates this, what exotic, foreign to the human heart, love the Father has permanently bestowed on us. Wake up and be aware of the love of God. And the reason we're so unaware of the move of the Spirit of God is because we've been unaware of the love of God. If you're unaware of the presence of God, this is something you and I need to be constantly mindful of all the time. My God is with me everywhere I go. Be mindful of that always. That right there is like bedrock revelation to living the Christian life. It's the promise God made to Joshua. You remember right before he's going to go out and fight and take a million or two people into the promised land? He said, be strong, be courageous, only be very strong and very courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. And then he said, look, here's the source of that boldness, the source of that strength from I'm with you everywhere you go. There's the source of your boldness in this life. That's the source of your strength in this life, is your awareness of the presence of God with you everywhere you go. And these little things that try to sneak in, these little feelings of loneliness, and you think because I don't have a lot of people in my life or I don't have the people I wish I had in my life or my family structure isn't as as strong or supportive as I would want it to be. You just, you you know, it's it's easy to feel lonely. And we kind of try to pet that, you know. I know, I understand. It's easy to feel that way. It is. But just because it's easy to feel that way does not mean you should feel that way. I don't care if every person on this planet If your mother herself turned her back on you and said, I do not love you anymore. And if everybody else did the same thing, you're not alone. Your God is with you everywhere you go. This is bedrock revelation, folks. But we've been unaware of it. We've been unaware that his presence was with us. Yeah, we've heard that. I heard. Yeah, of course I've heard God is with you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. But if you knew that, not just had you heard it, if you knew it, your response would be different. Your response to feelings of loneliness would be very different. I am not alone in this life. I was not created to fight alone. I'm not in this thing on my own. My God is with me. He's for me and never against me. That should be your response. But if you're unaware of his presence, you'll never say that. You'll never act that way. And if you're unaware of his presence, that's because you're unaware of how much he loves you. Behold what exotic, foreign to the human heart, Love the Father has bestowed on us. You know what that means? It means that you need to quit trying to get the love of God to make sense to you. It's exotic. 
this world is not familiar with it. It's not something that you just, it just makes sense to you. Because see, the kind of love that makes sense to us is, you know, I love you, you love me, so you do some things for me and I'll do some things for you. But look, if you don't for me, then I won't for you. And that's kind of the, the, the boundaries of human love. But the love of God is so exotic because it says, I loved you before you even knew me. I loved you when you were dead in sin. I loved you then. I love you now and I always will. So quit trying to get it to make sense to you and just reach out and believe it by faith. And if you knew what exotic, foreign to the human heart kind of love this was, your response to anything and everything in this life would be very, very different. Very different. I want you to hold your place here because we're going to come back. But look at Genesis chapter 13. The life of Abram, God speaking to him. And this whole chapter, is there's, there's so much we could learn uh, in the context of this verse, I want to show you verse 14. But let, for the sake of time, let's just look at verse 14. And I want you to hear what God said to Abram. Verse 14 of Genesis chapter 13 says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes up now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. Verse 15 says, all the land which you see, all the land which you what? See. That you see. All the land that you see, he says, I give to you and your descendants forever. But go back to verse 14. Put that back on the screen and I want you to see this. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, what was his instruction? Every word of this is important. He said, lift. Now, love the translation. Say, lift up. So I want you to say it. Say, lift up. He said, lift up your eyes now and look from. Say, lift up. Look from. Lift up. Look from. This was God's instruction to Abraham. At Abram at this point, he said, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Now, I want you to see that there's a great big difference between lift up and look from than letting down and looking at. Your future and the success, the prosperity, and the abundance of your life has everything to do with your ability to see from where you are, not, not where you stand right now. It's been our preoccupation with the present that has kept us locked out of our future. And if this word, this word behold means to be aware of, to look at, to see, then you and I need to understand that there are some things that we aren't seeing yet. And our lives and our futures depend on what we have the ability to see. Now, of course, you know I'm talking to you about seeing through the eyes of the Spirit. And I'm, I'm grateful for this natural ability to see. I'm, I'm so thankful for it. I thank God for that, it's, it's a wonderful gift. It's the grace of God that he's given us to, to, to see and to be able to look out with these two eyes and, and see the world around us. It's wonderful. Seen some beautiful places, seen some beautiful things. And I thank God for that. But at the same time, it gets a little frustrating when you're working with people who can't get beyond what they can see with these eyes. And it, it tends to be frustrating even in your own life when you are limited to and locked down only by what you can see with these eyes. Living by faith is learning to see with your eyes closed. Can I say that again to you? Living by faith is learning to see with your eyes closed. Behold, look at the love of God. Your future has everything to do with what you can see. God said to Abram, he said, lift up, lift up your eyes. I love this, this is like a good coach. Come on, get your head up. Get your head up. What are you dragging around for? Get your head up. Look up, get your chin up. Anybody ever said that to you before? It's a good Southern thing, isn't it? Chin up, boy, come on. Get your head up 
Lift up your eyes and look from this place. People are so preoccupied with what's going on around them right now that they can't see where they're supposed to be headed. God said, look from this place. Do you want to know why you are where you are right now? If you are in the place that God told you to be right now, right here and now, if you are where he told you to be, it's for one reason. Your future requires it. Your future demands you to be where you are right now. Why? Because every step in life is nothing but foundation for the next step. Everywhere you are in life is foundation for where you're headed. Even when you get to the next place, guess what? Now you're just laying more foundation for where you're going. And if you learn to think that way and learn to talk that way, then you'll never grow, you'll never just grow I, I use this word content, but you know what I mean by that. Like satisfied with where you're at. You'll, you'll understand that, hey, this is not where it ends. This is not the most that I can have. This is not the best that it can get. As a matter of fact, it just gets better all the time. But only if you know how to lift up and look from. And God said to him, everywhere that you see. All the land that you see, northward, eastward, south, west, every place that you see, I've given it to you. I've given it to you. You can have what he says you can have. But you're going to have to learn to see it. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 wrote that we don't look at things that are seen. But things that are what? Unseen. Why? Because the things that are seen, the things that you're going through right now, the things that you're dealing with right now. And here's the problem. It's like I told you, we get preoccupied with it. We get obsessed with where we are right now. And if somebody comes to you and says, hey, how's it going? There's this, if you're not careful, there's this tendency and propensity to just sort of verbally vomit all over people. Well, this is what I'm going through and this is what I'm dealing with and this is, where it's, this is what I have, what I don't have, what I wish I had. And if it was just like this, I'd have that. And you are so intimately familiar with where you are right now. But let me ask you, what do you suppose would happen if you had the ability to describe your future with the same kind of detail that you could describe your present? What if you could talk about your future with the same certainty you talked about your present? Now, if I ask you to describe the house you live in, I bet you could describe it with great detail, right? Not just, well, I think it's, it's three. It might be four bedrooms. I'm not sure. It's, it's three or four. No more than five. I just really can't remember. No, you know where you live. You know what house you live in. You know the color of every wall. You know where everything is most of the time. And you could describe in great detail the condition you live in right now. But what about being that certain about your future? Are you with me? What if you were that certain about where you're headed? What if you were that confident about what was ahead of you? Are you getting this? <laughs> The only way you're ever going to be that confident, because see, people don't know that they can be confident about their future. Why? They think, well, how can you be confident about some place you've never been, some place you've never seen? See, the word confidence means you know something. And if this world is marked, and it is, by its uncertainty, isn't it? This world that we live in, probably more today than ever before in the history of this planet, it's marked by its uncertainty. We don't know where we're going. We don't know where we're headed. We don't know what's next. Maybe the government will shut down. I don't know. And we fill station after station on the television, channel after channel, 24 hours of news, and panel after panel of people, and they all sit there and go, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. And occasionally you'll get someone that goes, this is how it's going to be, this is what it's going to be. And on the same panel, you've got somebody else going, no, this is how it's going to be, and this is what it's going to be. So you've got, if, if it's not the voice of uncertainty, you've got certain voices contradicting each other all the time. And this world is just marked by that. We don't know. We don't know what's up with the economy. 
We don't know. We've never been here before. How can we really know where we're headed? We haven't been to the future. We don't know what it's like. How can we really know what our government will look like, what our country will look like? How can we really know the, the status of our health system and our health care and even the, our own health itself? How can we know? We don't know. We don't know. And they're just marked by that. And the problem with going over all the time, all the time, and rehearsing what you don't know, it's depressing. It's really, really, really a drag. And you start thinking to yourself, man, I don't know. I don't know what's up. I don't know what's out there. I don't know what we're headed into. A scary movie, have you noticed that a scary movie is only its scariest the first time? Because when you're watching it for the second time, you know what's coming, right? You know it's coming. And even, even if it still startles you, you're like, oh, I knew it was coming. Am I right? I don't know where that came from. Don't ask me these things. But the problem is, it's people's uncertainty of the future that's keeping them locked in fear about the future. And if the only thing about the future is you just, you've never been there, you know, that doesn't mean you've got to be afraid of it. And some people are kind of caught in the middle, and it's like, well, I'm, I'm only afraid because I've never been there, but it wouldn't be my future if I'd been there. So how do I keep from living afraid? You behold how much you're loved. You get your eyes off of what you don't know, and you get your eyes onto what you do know. And he said, behold how much I love you. Get your eyes over here on how much I love you. I want you to be aware of how much I love you. More aware of his love than you are a failing economy. More aware of the love of God than you are some virus or some spreading epidemic. More aware of the love of God and his ever presence with you than you are of anyone or anything else on this earth. And yeah, maybe you don't know exactly what house you're going to live in in the future, but here's what you do know. God is good. And he is in my future right now. Can I give you a, a prophetic word here? This is, a, this is a prophetic word that will apply to everybody. L allow me to look into the future of every person in this room. Some people want to visit somebody that can look into a crystal ball or look into cards or read their palm and say, this is what's coming. Allow me for a moment to, to open the pages of this book and look into your future. Are you ready? Here's what's in your future. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. And his mercy endures forever. So if his mercy endures forever, that has to mean his mercy is in your future. The mercy and the grace and the goodness of God right now are in your future. And if that's all you knew about your future... Maybe you don't know what town it is. Maybe you don't know what house it is. Maybe you don't even know what country it is. But if all you knew about it was that the mercy of God was waiting for you when you got there, if all you knew that there was grace enough for you when you got there, that's more than enough to live unafraid. But the problem is we don't look at it like that. We're unaware. We're more aware of flesh. We're more aware of things that we can see with these eyes. Now this is, this is applicable to every area of our lives. And I have, I as a minister of the gospel, as a preacher of the word of God, this is something I've got to be watchful over. I remember one time I stood in a service and I shared some things that had happened in my life that I'd been instructed by the Lord to share. And ministered some very personal things. And I'll never forget the response I got from that message. People lined up to come and tell me the way it ministered to them. The way it connected with them. Why? Because they have gone through some of the same things. And it, it was so uh, unlike anything I had seen. And I remember thinking from that point on, oh, this is what I, I need to do. This. I mean, I need to share some, some things so that people can identify and I remember standing up some weeks later and sharing some things, again, on a personal level and leaving. And the Lord said, I never told you to say that. 
He said, you were trying to get them to identify with you. But as long as they're trying to identify with you, then you're all they can see. And they've got their eyes on flesh. And a lot of people like that. I mean, they like, I like that preacher. I really connect with him. I, I like that singer. I, I really connect with her. We share a lot of the same experience. I really connect. I really identify. Have you heard that word before? I really identify with that guy. Be very watchful there. Because if you, if, if all you like about it is that you identify with them, then all you can see is them. And Jesus said, where I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. I will draw all men to me where I am lifted up. Now, that's not really that unusual if you stop and think about it. We as humans are drawn to whatever's kind of above the fray. Whatever stands out the tallest in the crowd, that's just kind of what we magnetize towards. But the problem is, if I, as a preacher, or you, if, if we lift ourselves, or if I'm trying to get you to identify with me, then you're being drawn to me. And maybe from the back corner of that room, you know, I look good from there. But the problem is, the closer you get, the better you can see me. And the closer you get to another individual, the better you can see them. And then there's room for disappointment and there's room for frustration. But if we're all just going, hey, Jesus, Jesus, everybody come see Jesus. I want you to see him. I want you to see the goodness of God to you through Jesus, through Jesus. Now, I'm not saying I'll never share a story from my life. But listen, the purpose of it is not to get you to identify with me. My job, my entire job is to get you to identify with him. Because his victory is your victory. His place with the Father is your place with the Father. His seat next to the Father is your seat next to the Father. But if you're unaware of how much He loves you, then none of that even makes sense. None of it even makes sense. Until you know that God is love and everything He does is love and it all comes from love, then you'll never really understand Him. You won't. If your understanding or your, your opinion of God begins somewhere other than God is love, then very soon you'll be off. You've set yourself on a wrong track, a wrong, a wrong track of understanding Him. But unless it begins with God is love, you'll never understand Him. All I'm here to do this weekend is draw your attention to how much He loves you. And everything He's done to demonstrate that love to you. A lot of people want proof. I want proof that he loves me. I'll give you some proof. Here's some proof. Are you ready? Here's some, here's some God, is God is love and God loves you proof. You ready? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's your first proof right there. The Bible says so. The Bible says so. And some of you parents in here, you know the power of that. You know the power of simply saying. You've had the experience. You've been with, uh, you've in, in a conversation with your little child, and they want to know why. You're telling them something, and their response to everything you say is, Why? Let's go do this. Why? Because it's time to. Why? Because that's what we do. Why? 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 It's that but why conversation, right? And you say something and they say, but why? But why? But why? And if you're not watchful, you will catch yourself trying to logically communicate with a three-year-old. And I, allow me to impart reason to you and logic. And I want you to understand and I, I want you to develop and to grow and to have a comprehension of why we do what we do and, and, and why we do it, how we do it. And you will stand there. Most of the time it's dads. You'll stand there and have that conversation. And moms and dads will come to the same answer. I just think moms come to it quicker. The answer that ends the but why conversation. What is the answer? Because I said so. 
And typically it's when you've been brought to the end and you're done answering why. And it's like, look, this is, I said so, okay? Because I said so. That's my answer. That's my reason. Now let's go. Because I said so. And what are you saying? You're saying, I don't care if you get it. I, I don't care. I don't care if you understand. I don't care if you comprehend yet. All you need to know is I said so. And it's funny and it's cute and it's a little kid. But when you've got grown-ups living and communicating with God and God is saying to them, he's endeavoring to get over to them his will and his ways and his plan for their lives. And all they come back with is, Lord, but why? Why? I could never understand. So unworthy. How, how could you do that for me? And they, they live and act and sounds like humility, but it's just, it's not. It's just ignorance. Oh, but why? Lord, I just don't, I don't feel righteous. I know, I know you said I was, but I, I don't feel righteous. Why? 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 Well, look, it's, it's because I, I sent my son, and, and he who knew no sin was made to be sin for you, and that you might be made my righteousness through him. Yes, God, but why? But why? How? Why? Well, listen, I, I want you to know that that I redeemed you and I bought you back and, I, and he'll stand there with you and he'll try to communicate it to you because God is so good, he's so kind, he's so patient, he's so loving, he's so merciful and if, if you don't get it, he'll, he'll have somebody preach it to you. <laughs> but if we're unaware that he's endeavoring to get this over to us, you will sit in a service where your pastor's preaching on one thing and he says, you know, let me mention this. And he comes and stands over to the, on the corner of the stage where you're sitting and talks for about five or six minutes about the exact same, that you, same thing you're going through right now, the thing you need an answer on. He'll stand there and preach, preach, preach. So well, I don't know why I mentioned that, but let's get back to the word. And you'll go, huh, that's interesting. wonder who that was for. Because you're unaware of God and his love for you going, I'm trying to get the answer to you. Here it is. Let me give this to you. Here's the answer. Here's the answer. He's so patient with us. But you know what? I, I think God will come to the place with you when you're going, God, I, I know you said you, you love me, but why? But why? But why? And finally, he's going to go, because I said so. It's in my word. I said it about a thousand times. End of story. Let's go. I, I, I'm not so concerned with whether you get it yet. You're going to get it, okay? Just trust me. I said I love you. That's all you need to know. God is not a man that he should lie. He stands by his word. And if his word says that he loves you, guess what, folks? He loves you. He loves you. You want some more proof? The plan of redemption itself. Redemption itself. For God so loved. Don't we use that expression a lot? I so love that. Oh, I, I so love that. Young people use that. That's so amazing. I so love that. God so loved you that he proved it to you. It wasn't God so loved you that just he shouted real loud from heaven, I love you. There was proof to back up the words. He so loved you that he gave you Jesus. He so loved you that he set the plan of redemption in motion. And to really understand that, you've got to get a hold of what happened in the garden. And everybody's so down on Adam and Eve because they sinned. And they think, man, if they hadn't sinned, what if they hadn't sinned? What a world we would live in today. How amazing would it be? Somebody would have. You know what I mean? If it hadn't been them, somebody would have messed it up. And I just, sometimes I wonder, like, what if it had been you? You know, and we'd been 6,000 years or so, and everybody had just lived in perfect relationship with God, and there was no sin, but you ate it. Wouldn't you feel miserable? God, what a feeling that would be. I would hate to be the one. <laughs> but you got to understand what happened. Because you know what? You were the one. They represent you and I. I was the one. You were the one. And when sin entered, Romans chapter 5 says death through sin entered and death 
reigned. Death reigned. It's a kingdom word, reigned. Death was in charge. Death, sin and death, entered the earth and took man hostage. There was quite literally a kidnapped hostage situation that God had on his hands. Sin and death entered, held a knife, put a knife at man's throat, put a knife at your throat and said, if you ever want to see this man alive again, I demand to be paid. And God, because he is love and he does love, from that moment in time, the plan of redemption went into place. And for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, men and women would say, he's coming. He's coming. There's one coming. The government will be upon his shoulders. He's coming. He's coming. And then guess what? He came. Love himself came. And when love came, it was God in his love saying, this is what my man is worth to me. And you've seen this kind of thing played out. Maybe you've seen it in real life. I know you've seen it in, in art and movies and that kind of thing. And it's the, the kidnapper is testing to see what that child or what that individual is worth and what they're willing to pay. Because whatever the person is willing to pay, that's how much, at least that much, that that person is worth to them. What am I saying to you? I'm saying the price paid sets the value. If you go into a store and you buy something, you pay some crazy price for it because you love it that much and you think it's amazing. And I come to your house and I say, you paid that for that? Doesn't matter how much I think it's worth. The moment you paid that, that thing became, it, became worth at least that much, whatever it is. The price paid determines the value. So when God gave you Jesus, Scripture says that you and I were not redeemed with silver and gold, but with what? The precious blood of Jesus. God looked sin and death in the eye and he said, this is what my man is worth. This is what I'm willing to pay. So to come to God with all this, I'm not worthy, I'm not worth it stuff, He's saying, are you kidding me? I get to decide what you're worth. He said, I bought you. You were bought with a price. I determined what you're worth. And you were worth to me the price that I paid. And I I believe it's for that reason alone. Because of that level of the demonstration of the love of God. That there's something ingrained in mankind, whether born again or not. They know that the purchase of another human being is just wrong. They feel it. We've gone through stages, even in our own country, times and periods in our history, where that was, that was a prominent part of our society, but somebody knew it was wrong. Somebody knew that an, another man can't be purchased. Somebody knew that all men were equal in the eyes of their creator. They knew that and they thought, this isn't right. To purchase a human as a slave is not right. It's not right. Something in them knew it wasn't right. It's because you're worth more than silver. You're worth more than gold. And now even in our enlightened state, when you look around the world and you see that human trafficking and there's still young girls that are being sold into sex slavery and traded as slaves around the world, it, there, there are people, I, just, I, wish, I witnessed it just last night, watching a news program, saw two prominent uh, Hollywood individuals, if I said their names you know exactly who they were, sitting there talking about the atrocities of human trafficking. Two people, and I, don't, I wouldn't pass judgment, but just by all appearances, I wouldn't say are in church every weekend or living by faith. I don't know. I'm not going to judge them that way, but I know it's not a part of their platform that they live or that they preach. 
But still in them is this thing that knows that's wrong. What is that? You were redeemed. You were bought back. And because that revelation exists in the world through men and women like you and me and, and, and millions of believers all over the world, because that revelation is in the earth, there are people that whether they know it's from God or not, they sense it and they know man's worth more than that. Man is worth more than pennies. He's worth more than dollars. There's, there's just something that tells you you're worth more. And someday everybody will see that that, that thing that's telling you you're worth more is the love of God. I loved you and I gave myself for you. But our awareness of that love has got to come up. Our awareness, our response to situations should always be, yes, but my God loves me. We don't have enough this month. Yes, but he loves me. So if he loves me, there's no way he's going to let me go under. If he loves me, then he'll tell me what's up. If he loves me, he'll show me what's wrong. If he loves me and he does, I'm going to finish my race. I'm going to run my course. The plan of redemption is proof that God loves you. Let me show you a couple of scriptures and we'll close. Go with me to uh, Matthew chapter 13. Lift up and look from. Look from the place you are, folks, not at the place you are. If you are preoccupied and obsessed with the place you live in right now, then you are unaware of how much He loves you. It's your awareness of His love that gives you hope for your future. Matthew chapter 13. Over the last year or so, this has become a place in Scripture that has given me so much light and I'm so appreciated the Lord for that. Look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 13. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. I love that scripture. Can I just throw this in here for a moment? I love that scripture. Don't be guilty of just reading over things in scripture and not allowing them to speak to you. There are no wasted words here. On the same day, what day? Well, go back and read the chapter before and you'll find out it's the same day that Jesus was preaching in the house and his family came and stood outside and said, hey, we want to see him. Tell him to come out here because his family thought he was crazy. That's not a good day for anybody. To be attacked and ridiculed by your own family. And Jesus' response was to what? On the same day, he went out of the house and what did he do? Sat by the sea. What do you do when you got a lot of pressure? You just go and you find a quiet place, peaceful place. Isn't that good? Jesus does the same thing. We don't have a high priest who's not touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what it's like. And even besides all that, I just love the idea of having a house that you just walk out of and sit by the sea. I love that. That's, just, just grab a hold of that scripture. If you believe in for, you want a place to go and rest and relax, Walk out of the house. I'm going to be like Jesus. Walk out of the house. Sit by the sea. Just picture yourself doing that. It's in the word, baby. You can have it. All right. <laughs> Verse 2. Great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat. The whole multitude stood on the shore and he spoke many things to them in parables saying. Somebody help me. What did he say? Behold. Behold. Look at this. I want to show you something. Is it possible that Jesus sees something that maybe you and I don't see yet? Is, that, is it remotely possible? No? I mean, I'm not getting any response from you. Let me help you. Yes, it is. It's entirely possible. Nay, even probable. He sees it, but here's what's so good about our God. He doesn't keep it hidden from you. It's hidden for you. Let me show you this, he says. Behold, look, a sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. The birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. 
But when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root and they withered away. And some fell among thorns and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now notice this in verse 10. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? In other words, why are you talking like this? All these people came to hear you preach. And you're giving agricultural advice. What are you talking about? But how many of you know that's not what Jesus was doing? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Yes, Lord, okay. Of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For whoever has to... Uh, to him more will be given, he and he will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now that's kind of a brutal scripture. Him who has, more will be given, but him who doesn't have, even what he does have will be taken away from him. Jesus, that's not nice. Don't be like that. Why you gotta be like that? But you gotta go find out exactly what he was talking about here. He says in verse 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables because seeing, they do not see. They don't behold. They're unaware. They don't perceive. Seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed, he says in verse 16, are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In other words, he said, all these people out here, they see me, but they don't see me. They all saw Jesus, but they didn't see him. They heard him, but they didn't hear him. You know what I mean by that? You remember those posters back 10, 12 15 years ago, I don't know what it was, but it was these posters that people would have up, and it was just shapes and colors, and you, you really, it just didn't look like anything, but people said if you stared at it long enough, you would see something in it. You remember those? Do you remember being frustrated by those? Because somebody said, there's a, a unicorn if you just look, or there's a, there's a spaceship, but if you just look in here, you'll see the spaceship. And you stood there, and you looked, and you looked, and you looked, and all you saw was colors and shapes, and it's like, I don't see it, I don't see it, I don't see it. And some guy comes walk up, and he goes, hey, spaceship. <laughs> and you're frustrated because it's like, where, where, I don't see it, I don't see it. But notice, look, what happened? You're both, you both looked at the same thing, but only one of you saw something. So all these people were seeing Jesus, but they didn't see him. They didn't see him. People would come to him and call him good teacher. And yes, Jesus was a teacher, but how many of you know he was so much more than just a teacher? He said, they see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. And I don't want to take time to get into this entire parable. We may do that over the course of the weekend, but I want you to see that what he's talking about here, you see in the next few verses, he says, the sower sows the word of God. At first he said to the disciples, now hear this parable. I thought they all just heard it. Yeah, they heard it, but they didn't hear it. He said, now hear it. The sower sows the word. And what he, what he described to them were four kinds of ground. And on the first three kinds of ground, the word, the seed of the word of God didn't produce. Now, that's a huge statement, folks. To think that the word of God and all the power that's in it, that there's something that could keep it from producing or reproducing in your life. That's huge. And there are people who are frustrated because they heard what the word is able to do. They heard it, and they didn't hear it. They heard a principle and tried to apply that, but instead of letting that principle connect them to the person of Jesus. So the first thing you have to see here is that the word cannot, will not, does not work unless you look in it and see Jesus. Unless the veil has been removed. 
Didn't Paul say that? Didn't he say that the veil is still over their eyes as they read the Old Testament? But he said the veil is removed in Christ Jesus. The veil must be removed. What am I saying? I'm saying you need, your life depends on a revelation of who Jesus is. Who he is to you, who he is through you, who he is for you, and who he is as your representative to God the Father. Without that revelation, it's just words on a page. But when you look here and you see the word himself, now it can begin to work in your life. So until you see and perceive, hear and understand, I see Jesus in that. One of my favorite games to play is finding Jesus in the Old Testament. I just want to find him. Because sometimes you read it through and you think, what is this about? It's all revealing him. It's all pointing you to him. And I could take you through place after place after place that maybe you've heard before, but you didn't realize that it was about Jesus. It's all pointing you to him. The veil is removed in him. But how many know it's challenging to live life like this? And it's a veil and you can kind of see out of it, but not really clearly. But you know what? If, you, if it stays there, you kind of just get used to it. You get used to looking at things that way. And I was thinking about this this afternoon and the Lord quickened to some, something to me that I'd never really thought of. And I remembered Jacob in the book of Genesis and how he said he'd work for Laban for seven years if he could marry Rachel. And Laban had two daughters. One was Leah and one was Rachel. And the scripture said of Leah that she was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful. Do you know what tender-eyed means? Basically, she's got a nice personality. That's, that's kind of what that means. If you go back and look at it, it just means, tender means weak, and it, she was like weak to look at. Not, not hot, basically. She's not hot, okay? Uh, Leah, she's sweet. She's really sweet. She's got a great personality. Um, Rachel, though, okay. But what happened? Jacob worked for Laban for seven years, I said, okay, I want my wife. And Laban tricked him. Now, if you've been after the same girl for seven years, the scripture even says it just felt like a matter of moments to Jacob because of the way he loved her. But if you've been after that same girl for seven years, what would it take to trick you into marrying somebody else? That must have been a serious veil over her face. I think it, it, was a, it was a combination of two things. I think there's a, a ridiculously thick veil over her face. It must have been like a full body veil or something like that because... But then the scripture says that, there was, there, that Laban made a great feast and they were all drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. And I think that's probably the other part of the problem. So young people, listen to me. Stay away from alcohol. It's the scripture, Okay. You will marry the ugly sister. If you, if you drink, I'm quoting scripture to you. If you drink, you will marry the ugly one. Somebody say, I received that. Okay. But I got to thinking about the seriousness of living with a veil on your face. And the, the amount of deception that you're living under. If you don't see Jesus and see him clearly, why? Because he is proof that God is love and he loves you. Now this even goes on to say, and I've preached long enough to you, musicians, you guys come on back up. This even goes on to say that there's a kind of ground that Jesus called stony ground. And he said, because that stony ground, it was stones, a layer of stone just under the earth. And the seed could not get through and it could not penetrate and it could not take root. He said, because it had no root. It had no root, he said. No root. No root. What did Ephesians 3 say? That you and I are to be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted in how much God loves you. That is supposed to be your root. 
there are times when my time with the Lord is nothing but just sitting there and meditating how much He loves me. The proof in my life that He loves me. He's demonstrated it over and over and over and over. And He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And until you and I become aware, until we learn to behold the love of God, His Word cannot produce or reproduce in our lives all the things that it's capable of doing. But until you hear it and see it through the eyes of love, it can't do anything for you. Without a revelation of how much you're loved, the Word cannot produce for you.